I, I guess that mermaids have been with us since humans started creating civilizations and they're not showing any signs of disappearing anytime soon. So they're, they're our companions, really. They've, they've been with us since the dawn of time and I think we should, we should carry on enjoying them. It's the Mermaid Podcast. We've got mermaids on the land and down below. Legs or fins, you will love our show. All the news that makes a splash is on the Mermaid Podcast. Hello, you're listening to the Mermaid Podcast, and I'm your host, Laura Von Holt, the fairy boss mother of Cinderly. This episode is sponsored by Mermaid Magic, a very cool business that makes biodegradable glitter and compostable packaging. They also make mermaid scales that stick to your face and body for no mess sparkle. I've gotten to play with these products and they are loads of fun. You can use code PODCAST20 for 20% off your order at GetMermaidMagic.com or follow the link in our show notes. They also offer free shipping. Thanks, Mermaid Magic! If you would like to sponsor an episode of the Mermaid Podcast, you can email us at podcast at cinderly.com and we will be happy to hook you up. Get it? Okay, Mer friends, one more bit of news. We have made a unicorn cookbook and it has a recipe for mermaid cheesecake and you can back it on Kickstarter. You're going to hear more about it a little bit later, but as always, the link to get it is in our show notes. And now, Mer friends, Mer people, mermaids, mer everybody, on to this episode. Now, you asked for more mermaid history, and I tracked down the queen of mermaid historians. And yes, that is a real job, and I'm really jealous that I didn't think of it first. Sarah Peverly is a medievalist, cultural historian, and BBC Radio 3 New Generation thinker. She is also the author of two forthcoming books entitled The Mermaid's Tale, A Cultural History of Mermaids, and Mermaids of the British Isles. Yes, I always so want those books like right now, and I am ready to offer to babysit her kid or cook or clean or whatever I need to do to help Sarah get these books out into the world. Sarah has an amazing amount of knowledge, and we talked about everything from early interactions with mermaids to mermaids' role in Christianity to circuses who traveled with mummified mermaids. You have got to get ready, sit down. You are about to learn a lot. Hello, I'm Sarah Peverly. I'm Professor of Medieval Literature and a Cultural Historian at the University of Liverpool. Yay! Okay. Um, so I'm very excited to talk to you today because people have been asking me for more mermaid stories and more mermaid legends, and I very thankfully came across you in many of my Google searches. Um, and... So what I want to talk to you today, since you are a, a historian, is um, about what you know. I know you're working on a book, so I'd love to hear about that. And then also mm -hmm. what you know about, um, I think, some very early mermaid stories and um, also anything that's, that has surprised you in your mermaid research. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about the, the it's more than one book, I believe, that you're working on. It is. I'm okay. trying to juggle two at the moment, yes. <laughs> so um, one's, one's quite specifically on mermaids of the British Isles up to around about the Renaissance period, and the other is the cultural history of mermaids from across the world, which covers all time, which is a small oh, task. Just all time. <laughs> just forever. 
<laughs> and am, am I correct? Was it your, in writing The Mermaids of the British Isles, is that what led you into the, a cultural history? It was kind of the other way around, actually. Um, so I've, I've always been interested in mermaids, like a lot of people from, from being a child. Yeah. And um, so for, throughout my life, I've read mermaid legends and myths from other countries about water deities and supernatural creatures that live in water. Um, obviously have my favourites, like Hans Christian Andersen's The Little Mermaid and favourite films that have left a mark on me along the way, like um, Disney's Little Mermaid and Daryl Hannah's Splash. Yes, that's a classic. Uh, I guess you, get, you get those probably come uh, up quite a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's also, I think, why I moved to New York was because I saw Splash. <laughs> good move, good yeah. move. <laughs> yeah, so I, I guess that, that lifelong love affair with mermaids has always interested me, but I never kind of thought about it in an academic way until a few years ago and in my teaching, because um, I'm primarily a medievalist, I, I just kept coming across examples of them. And so I looked into them a little bit more in the period that I specialise in and, and just found that actually a lot of the things I was seeing connected up with much air things and they were a springboard for much later things. And so that's where the Mermaids of the British Isles project came from, really, that, that kind of love that I'd always had of mermaids, but putting it in a more specific context to try and narrow it down a little bit, because obviously there is so much in our history that it, it is difficult to juggle. But yes, wow. Yeah. Oh, so let's focus on Mermaids of the British Isles first. So um, what... What is, do you have a date for the maybe earliest mermaid mention or artwork? Um, how does it show up in the earliest time? So I, I had to define a period, and that's always quite an arbitrary thing, um, but it can also be quite a specific thing, um, depending on what you're working with. And it seemed silly for me not to begin with um, the remnants of the Romano-British influence of mermaids. So in the very early Middle Ages, we, we don't have many references, many texts, um, even many artworks surviving. But what you can see um, when you do start getting representations of them quite frequently it, from around about the um, sort of late 11th, early 12th century onwards, is that these um, figures are very heavily influenced by what you see across Europe and uh, specifically what you see in ancient Rome. And of course, a lot of the ancient Roman uh, iconography is coming from uh, earlier cultures. It's, it's influenced by um, Greek visual culture and, and literature and, and even arguably earlier than that. You can see stuff going on in that sort of Mediterranean area across further into the Middle East, you can you can see lots of mermaid traditions and iconography blending together. So I, I started the British Isles project um, with Saverka 450, um, which, which can mean something and can mean nothing, <laughs> depending on which viewpoint you want to take. But it was so that I could look at what the Romans had left behind in Britain. We do, we do have a wonderful... Um, mosaic that I grew up as a child seeing because it's in one of the whole museums in Kingston upon Hull 
And it's of Venus who's dropped the mirror. It's called the Rudston Villa Mosaic. And she has this really freaky-looking mare creature with her. It's it's kind of like a, a mare-man. Okay. It's obviously meant to be a triton because it's holding a torch, okay. and that would fit in with, with um, ancient iconography of, of how they were often depicted. But it's just this weird, freaky little creature. <laughs> but you can nevertheless see that nice, defined human torso, head and arms, and then the fish tail. So I wanted to think about all the things that we've lost that, that might have had similar depictions and, and how going forward they might have influenced the British tradition. Wow. I, you said the year 450 and I was like, oh yes, I remember it well. <laughs> that was like <laughs> way further back than I thought we were going to go. <laughs> um, it's, it's, the kind of, it's the period that's assigned to when the Romans abandoned Britain. Okay. So that sort of circa 450 is when they, they up sticks and leave, and, and then you've got, but you've obviously got the remnants of the, the culture that they left behind. So you've got the, the Roman forts, you've got bad brooches, you've got letters, you've got texts that they brought to the country, and, and obviously you've got things like the villas with the carvings and, and the mosaics in them. So that, that kind of made sense to me to start there. Interesting. Um, so and and then from there, how does how do mermaids or mer people show up? So the the the, the next biggest jump. I mean, you you have references to creatures that are called um, mere oh. which are kind of you know. Uh, you, I guess you could interpret them as mermaids. Um, the the very famous Anglo-Saxon poem Beowulf. Uh, Grendel, the monster in that, his mother is referred to as a mere wife um, on one occasion, and, and she's a creature, a supernatural creature that inhabits the water, and Beowulf has to go into that element to defeat her. So there's a kind of whistle-stop tour of, of those moments. And then the, the main sort of hard work really begins in what we would class as the, the Middle Ages, uh, the early Middle Ages proper, so to speak. Um, and that's after the conquest. So after 1066 and the Norman conquest, the Normans bring over that with them their ideas of architecture and, and literature. And this starts influencing the culture. And you've, you get then the first flourishing of mermaid iconography in medieval churches. And that runs right through for um, the next four centuries and right up until the 15th century the mermaid is a prominent creature in the medieval church she's painted on walls with saint christopher she's carved into the capitals that hold up the building she's there in the seats that monks used to rest upon called misericords wait so monks are like sitting hanging out with mermaids yeah, that's kind of. <laughs> so the misericords were seats. Um, okay. Monks had to stand for a very long time, and the the older ones used to get tired. So they invented a seat that it, it's a bit like a cinema seat. You know the ones that lift up and lift down. Oh, okay. They're a bit like that. That's the best modern equivalent. And they used to leave them propped up, but rest against them. But when they were propped up, they had beautifully carved images on them. And so a monk's bottom was regularly pressed up against the mermaid. (laughs) (laughs) Along with other creatures, of course, not just mermaid. This is great. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Wow. Okay. And 
what is the sense from from what you've researched? What is the sense of the mermaid? Is there or is there any sense of what they're like and their qualities? Because I know in in modern imagination, there's um, different schools of sometimes they're violent and dangerous. Sometimes they're very alluring and very sensual. Sometimes they're like you know very beautiful ambassadors for the ocean. Um, what seems to be the sense of the mermaid in that time? So in, in the Middle Ages, the, they, they have a mixed personality, really. They, they, they embody all of the things, essentially, that you just mentioned. Um, for the most part, they're dangerous creatures to be avoided. So this, this tradition of the danger of the mermaid, uh, it originates in um, classical ideas, so ancient Greek and Roman ideas of the sirens. So the sirens we first encounter in Homer's Odyssey. And in that text, Homer doesn't describe them. He doesn't tell us what they look like, but what they are attributed with are beautiful voices that beguile men with promises of knowledge, and they shipwreck those that hear their singing because it's so irresistible. And in the Middle Ages, this idea was taken, this myth was taken and applied um, allegorically to define a Christian life. So you would see the sirens as a medieval person, you'd interpret them as sinful creatures, devils, if you like, that would try and beguile you, try and trick you into following them, into um, being bewitched by them and lose your immortal soul. And so the, the, the story of Odysseus or Ulysses, depending on which tradition, Greek or Roman, you're, you're reading the story in, um, Odysseus was the sort of model hero, the model Christian, if you like, even though he's a pagan character, um, he's the good guy, so you, you can listen to the siren song, but you mustn't follow the path that they try to lure you on. Um, but ideally, like the sailors who plug your ears to the siren song and carry on sailing, not listening. So um, that, that, that kind of story would have been very well known. And so when you see a mermaid in the medieval church, because the mermaids get amalgamated with the sirens and that body of mythology that's attached to them quite early on in the classical period, uh, by the time you get to the Middle Ages, the sirens would have been known as these either bird-like women or fish-tailed women that would lure you to your doom. But alongside of that, there is a tradition that survives in the Middle Ages that comes from the earliest origins of mermaids, and that's that connection with Godhead, with, with divinity. And there's a, there's a wonderful example of this. I've, I've found a few others, but this is the best one. Um, there's a 14th century mystery play that was, it's a, a mystery play is a religious piece of drama that was used to educate those who weren't very educated. So that couldn't necessarily read at this time, is that right? Or there was... So people could read and write, but not, not most people. So if you were in a, a monastery or a nunnery, you would probably know how to read and write. If you were of a noble family and were very well off, Again, you would probably know how to read and write quite well. Um, and most people were juggling several languages in this period, so they could speak and write English, French, and Latin. Um, but your your average person, if it was you or I yeah. <laughs> in the Middle Ages, 
we'd probably be the plebs, unfortunately, and we we wouldn't be able to read or write um, very much. We might be able to mark our name uh, with a with a cross or something, and we might be able to, to read words that we saw regularly in church because we we would know what they said. But as a rule, no, we we wouldn't be able to. It's like why so, does um like pub signs have like a rooster or something on them? Um, I do you know what? I've never thought of it like that, but that's that's a good point. Po- quite possibly, yeah, because you do you do you do get things referred to. Um, so the very famous mermaid tavern in London is often referred to in 16th century texts as at the sign of the mermaid. So yeah, very very po- probably that that worked in that sense. I might have just gotten that off um, the tour I went to at Stonehenge, so I don't quote me on that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you shouldn't have said that. You sounded so knowledgeable and <laughs> and thoughtful there. Um, so sorry. But, um, yeah, going back to the the, um, the the 14th century play. Yeah. That um, that was used to teach people about Christ's divinity, and and one of the hardest concepts to explain, even to the most educated person in the Middle Ages, was this idea that Christ is at once God and man. He's two things in one body. And so this wonderful mystery play uses the um, example of the mermaid. And it has a line, I'm paraphrasing now, but it basically says, in medieval Cornish, um, this is how Christ is. He is like the mermaid part fish, part woman, he is part God, part man. And so that mermaid image is used to to literally find Christ and, and to talk about his his incarnation as a child. So when he becomes flesh incarnate, when he comes down in that beam of light into Mary and then is born as baby Jesus, he is at once God and in a man's body. So that, that image works quite well, I think. And the ingenuity of it just astounds me, really. Yeah, I love the use of, um, of fantasy and magic to explain the miraculous. Mm. Yeah, that's that's cool. I know. I I kind of I'd, in some of my research had heard mentions that um, the mermaid was associated with Christianity, and I was and I had not understood why. So that is so cool. Um, that I think that's also interesting. Like you're saying that there's one aspect of them that is like the devil, like warning against temptation or falling off the path. And then the other part is that they're an educational tool. That's such an um, interesting juxtaposition. Mm-hmm. Wow. Is, do any of these mermaids ever have um, names associated with them as they appear? Not, not that I've come across really, no. Um, the, the naming of mermaids is normally connected with the sirens so when you do get names it's authors trying to attribute names to the sirens and there's a tradition that that has various different names depending on which source you're using but again that comes from the classical period and medieval writers rereading those works and writing their own versions so um there are of course um exceptions to that there is a very famous water fairy um i'm going to call her a water fairy because there are various different versions of her legend and in some of them she's a mermaid with a fish tail and in some versions she's um, part woman part serpent tailed water a kind of water serpent and in other versions she's she's part sort of dragon-like 
and um, she's called Melusine, so she does have a name, and her her story is very popular in the Middle Ages throughout the continent, but largely in France. Um, and then that comes across to England, and there are some English versions written of her story. And she she founds a dynasty in France. She's a kind of founding figure, and her whole lineage have connections with different aristocratic families across Europe in the Middle Ages, or at least her mythical um, lineage did. Wait, are you saying that people are were like, oh, we're descended from her, or they claim her as kind of like a like a patron water deity? Um, they they claim to be descended from her. That's yeah. so cool, isn't it cool? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'd love to so say my mermaid. My grandma was a mermaid or something. <laughs> oh yeah, I was. I would claim that as well. <laughs> um, yeah, she. Are those family lineages still surviving? Do do they still brag about that? I I would so. <laughs> do you know I I've not checked, but I imagine I imagine that you, there is someone alive today, at least one person that you could technically trace back to this group of people who claim to have her as an ancestor. I mean, the problem is with medieval mythologies and and genealogies is you get so far back with real ancestors that you know existed but then you get into the kind of realms of legend and mythology so all the British to use another analogy they all the British kings used to trace their lineage right back to Adam the oh. first man in the bible and obviously that that wasn't true and, and so the Melusine myth gets a little bit that but the fact that there were real aristocrats in medieval France in Germany and um, in other areas on the continent that actually claimed descent from her is really important. Oh, okay, wow. Yeah. I mean, uh, you've probably heard of the White Queen book yes. by Philippa Gregory. She uses the Melusine connection oh, because um, Elizabeth Woodville's mother, Jacatta of Luxembourg, was descended from the House of Luxembourg and they claimed descent from Melusine. So she's the water goddess in that series of books. Oh, right. I remember um, that she had so, some um, powers. I also watched the TV show, but I'd forgotten that it was um, a water a water spirit. Or, she was kind of like also, and sometimes it was like she was witchy or sometimes she was just had magic. So, I, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. The, the real Elizabeth wasn't like that, but okay. <laughs> it makes a <laughs> <the> good fiction. <laughs> um, which then, so claiming descendants from Melusine would be important when you're influencing a very important time in um, history with yes. a lot of wars. Yeah. yeah, I can see how that's important. Um, that reminds me kind of of, like, uh, the Trojan War of, like, you know, which gods and goddesses are on which side. That almost mm-hmm. echoes some of that. Um, being like, the water goddess is on my side, and therefore my my rose is the better one. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, lots of countries in the Middle Ages across Europe tried to tie the the origins of their country to things like the Siege of Troy. Um, Paris was meant to have been founded by Paris after the Siege of Troy, and Britain was founded by Brutus, Brutane, it became named after him. Um, So this idea of tying things back as far as you can go into that kind of um, mythical history was was very important back then, and, and people genuinely believed that these figures had existed 
and um, and that the, the genealogies they were putting forward could conceivably be right. Mm-hmm. So it's it's very interesting area of study, really. Is there an idea of how they would have been descended from her? Like, was there a specific um, person or like mortal that she intermarried with, or something, or or was it just the idea that she had a lot of children? Like, was there a, a direct connection? Her, her story becomes famous um, associated with the Lusignan dynasty and she founds a castle there and she marries a man called Raymond who wasn't a real character but the people who owned that castle in the Middle Ages um, helped to circulate this myth because she traditionally was believed to come back whenever the castle had exchanged hands um, and so she was used in the Hundred Years' War with France to explain how certain territories switched hands. And then later on, when her, her mythology was revived in England and her, her story was retold, she was connected um, with the period, we think, the, of the Wars of the Roses. So again, it's kind of this idea of females passing on claims and territories uh, in periods of war, so the, the mermaid figure or the water fairy figure was important in that context because it it's fine to have a supernatural woman with power, but um, these were periods where you still didn't really want real women having power and wielding it too much. So you could pass on a claim to the throne through a woman, and in, during the Wars of the Roses in England, the House of York did just that. Their claim to the throne was via a, a female descendant, um, sorry, a female ancestor. And so uh, stories of women with power, whether it's mermaids or fairies or um, angelic-like creatures later on, they, they can often be used to articulate concerns and anxieties that men have about women having claims and, and power. That's fascinating. I'm glad you said that because as soon as you talked about a powerful woman, I was like, hmm, how do they really feel about that? Historically, it hasn't gone well. <laughs> like, it hasn't, no. Um, um, a, a, maybe a good example, actually, skipping forward a, a century or so, is Mary Queen of Scots, who's a very, very famous um, Queen of Scotland. Um, she married very early on the Dauphin of France. So she was regularly referred to in her younger years as the Dauphiness of France, which literally means kind of Dolphiness of France. So there's kind of culture associated with her as, as a sort of mermaid and pageants that were used to celebrate her marriage to the, the Dauphin of France. Um, supposedly had lots of sirens and water deities in them. And I've, I've found records of Mary actually owning a mermaid jewel that was passed on to her from her father. And so there, there's this sense that mermaids in, in her period were used in quite a positive context to celebrate the kind of the union of Scotland with France, so the waters that actually separate the two countries were bringing them together. But then later in poor Mary's career, um, her, her second husband, um, Lord Darnley, 
he gets murdered in very suspicious circumstances that that, that are still not being solved satisfactorily today. Uh-oh. And she was she was accused of being complicit in his murder with one of the with what would become her third husband, <laughs> Lord Bothwell. Oh yeah, and. Um, at the time, people implicated Mary in this crime by circulating in Edinburgh um, copies of bills, so um, things that somebody had drawn, um, highly symbolic uh, depictions of her as a mermaid with a lure, uh, a hawk low, which is a piece of equipment you use to lure the bird in when you're doing um, falconry. And it was a mermaid trying to lure a rabbit, uh, or sorry, a hare, which is the symbol of Lord Bothwell, and the, the, the kind of coded message of this poster that circulated straight after her, her husband was murdered um, was implying that Hare and Bothwell had been in cahoots um, and had plotted this murder. And so the mermaid iconography that was very positive in her earlier reign um, became turned against her and, and turned into something very negative because she was then that kind of mermaid who was aligned with the sirens of old, the destructive woman who would shipwreck men and, and lead them to their doom. So she's, she's a wonderful, I love that story and, and that, that sort of event because it just shows how quickly the mermaid imagery could be flipped. It can be a positive symbol, it, it can be very negative. And that's so interesting to see how it captures the imagination where someone who is, or a, a being who is part woman, part fish, can be seen as union, or you flip it and it becomes a symbol of duplicity. Kids at heart. So if you want to get this cookbook, it's exclusive to Kickstarter, so you have to go right there at the link. <laughs> get the Easy Bake Unicorn Cookbook at cinderly.com slash cookbook. What I and mean, what else? I mean, I'm sure there's a ton in there, but what else um, have you found, or was there any like uh, you know s- surprising image that was drawn, or surprising use of mermaids, or anything you know anything that just uh, that you found more curious than you would have expected? Um, well, that's a tricky question, really. Um, I think I think one of the things that I came across when researching the broader cultural history and something that's um, sort of been quite 
powerful for me recently, especially with the release of um, the the book The Mermaid and Mrs. Hancock, is the um, the historical precedent for that. In the very early nineteenth century, um, a man, uh, a Boston sea captain called um, Samuel Barrett Eads was um, doing a trade run on a ship that he owned a partial share in. He owned one-eighth share in the ship. And he was doing a trade run um, and came across a, a man of war, a Dutch man of war, that was close to sinking. And he rescued the crew of that ship and took them back to Batavia, which um, is modern-day, um, get this right, modern-day Jakarta, and this is where the Dutch, who did a lot of trading and were the only Europeans to do any um, sort of contact with Japan during its closed border policy. And um, that was one of their main ports. And while he was in Batavia, hoping for a reward from the Dutch authorities for rescuing this crew, um, he came across a fake mermaid, one of the mummified mermaids that had come from Japan. Um, that one of the Dutch sailors had picked up over there. And he was just obsessed with it. Now, I, I don't know if you've seen any images of these freaky, mummified mermaids, but they are hideous. Yeah. <laughs> They're hideous. They're, the, most, um, the most famous one is the one that I'm talking about, which later went on to become P.T. Barnum's Fiji Mermaid. And it, it was described at the time as having the body of a monkey, which is now known not to be true, um, and the tail of a fish, a big fish like salmon or a carp. And the, this wizened little hideous beast was on display in Batavia, and Captain Eads came across it and was obsessed with it. He thought it was real. He thought that it would change the world, and that if he managed to purchase it somehow, he would be able to take it back to Europe and America and become quickly very rich and possibly rewrite natural history books. Because at this time, um, in the sort of late 18th and early 19th century, there was still much debate about whether mermaids were real or not. And a lot of scientists sort of went to and fro with the argument, putting forward evidence that they were or they weren't. So anyway, the, the long and the short of it is that the Eads, basically, he sold his ship and his cargo without the permission of his partner, oh. who owned seven-eighths of the ship. Oh, the majority. He sold it for, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> shocking. Um, he, he sold it for 6,000 Spanish dollars and bought the mermaid for approximately 5,000 Spanish dollars. He used his change to get back to um, London, stopping on the way to display the mermaid in South Africa and Cape Town. And essentially, this mermaid took London by storm. Everybody queued up. They wanted to see it. He charged a shilling to see it. Um, scientists debated about whether it was true, whether it was a real creature or not. Um, but, of course, eventually, his, his crime in sequestering all the ship and selling it caught up with him and the mermaid was actually while the legal debacle was going on between him and his partner the mermaid was actually made a ward of chancery oh. by the lord chancellor <laughs> um <laughs> i like in my mind i'm like i'm not sure how that works but i was like are there adoption papers or like <laughs> 
Well, the, the wardship of chancery was, was something that could de be deployed for wealthy heirs and heiresses oh. to stop them eloping with um, disreputable characters before oh, they would say to come of age. Oh, so yeah, that um, was like a romance novel plot. So, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah the sort of typical Mills and Boone sort right. of storyline. Right. Um, but this, this wardship was given to the mermaid so that Eads couldn't escape the country with her what, until the settlement had been made to his partner. Um, and it, it's quite a tragic tale because although she didn't make a fortune for Eads, he, he basically ended up back at sea for the rest of his life working off a debt that he could never pay. Um, the mermaid, when he died, passed on to um, his heirs and they sold it to, um, oh, I've forgotten his name now. Um, Oh, it's completely gone. Anyway, they sold it to an acquaintance of P.T. Barnum. And P.T. Barnum went into partnership with the man that had it. He was um, curator of the Boston Museum. And they exhibited it in New York. And it caused such a storm and made so much money for him that it's one of his most infamous exhibits. And, you know, just the story of how that mermaid came all the way from Japan and was this most hideous creature, quite unlike anything that mermaids were painted like. Right. You know, it wasn't beautiful. It was this wizened little monster. And yeah. yet it fascinated half the world. Yeah. Um, I just find that story shocking yeah. and funny and sad all at once. And that kind of sums up how mermaids are applied. They're, they're just applicable to so many emotions, aren't they, in so many contexts. And that story seems to encapsulate it all. And, and even though she's an artifact and not living, there's still some sort of um, almost damning allure to her. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and Barnum, Barnum, you know, the great showman that he was, knew this. He knew that they would, he would not, never be able to um, stop debate about whether she was real or not. So he embraced that, and that was part of his kind of master stroke, if you like, because people, some people went to see that mermaid knowing it was a fake, and yet they still wanted to see it because it was so cleverly done. They wanted to see if they could see where the stitching was or spot a scene that one of these great scientists claiming it was real had, had spotted. So that allure of the mermaid is there even with the, the most hideous fakes. And do we have any information now on her actual origins or, like, what she was comprised of or, you know, like, was, is there DNA testing or anything now? Um, and um, the, around. There, was, there, were, there, were, there were reports done on her at the time, and one of the leading um, scientists at the time who worked at the Royal College of Surgeons in London um, did quite detailed analysis of her. He, his notes survived the measurements of her, a little sketch of what she looked like. Um, and he concluded that she was made from uh, part orangutan and part fish. But, um, of course, he was doing that examination just with his eyes. And um, modern tests that have been done recently on other examples of Fiji mermaids, because that's the, the label that's generally given to them now. That's how um, Barnum pitched it and advertised it. He pretended it had been found in Fiji and, and called it the Fiji mermaid. Um, so other Fiji mermaids that exist, and there are quite a few of them in museums and um, private collections around the world. Those that have been tested seem to be made of papier-mâché, um, 
jawbones of um, apes and fish, um, obviously fish skin and scales. But inside the torso part, they generally tend to be packed with fabrics and clay and and sort of metal frames. And then a skin is a skin of some kind or um, paper is sort of dampened and and moulded around it. So they were they were very ingeniously crafted. And they at that time, because Japan had been closed off from the world, these things that were coming out of Japan just baffled and, and astounded everybody because they'd never seen anything like it before. Um, London had had exhibitions before of mermaids, but they were things like angel sharks and, um, and other sea creatures that had been malformed and, and misshapen to make them look a bit more mermaid-like. And these things, we know, were on exhibit before Captain Eads brought his mermaid to London, but um, yeah, the, the, I think the ingenuity of these things was part of their fascination, the skill that had gone into them. Right. So, um, that is fascinating. Um, so to go back to some of this earlier stuff we were speaking about, is there any sense of how some of these earlier, from these earlier mermaid depictions, of how or if they interacted with humans, um, was there was it primarily sailors, um, or were they just were they creatures of the imagination? Um, well, anything from before the last two hundred years, well, actually anything before the last hundred years or so, um, we're actually talking about a, a historical period, a long and lengthy historical period where people didn't know whether they existed or not. So you would always have mermaid sightings. You had some of them in the Middle Ages. You had them in the classical period. You had them in the 18th century, 17th century, 16th century. So people were always seeing things out on the oceans or in rivers that they wondered whether or not they were mermaids. And so interactions with those types of creatures um, were often seen as real-life examples of how mermaids could interact with um, human beings. But um, the human interaction side is something that is there pretty much in, in every aspect of mermaid folklore and mermaid history. One of their enduring appeals as a creature is because they, they do connect with us in stories that are told about them. It's often a mermaid falling in love with a human man or um in Matthew Arnold's poem, This Forsaken Merman, it's a merman that's fallen in love with a human woman and then she abandons him. So the, the love affair, generally it tends to be a merman, the human man, but there are instances where it's flipped and it's the other way around. And of course we've seen one of those examples recently of the film The Shape of Water. <laughs> um, but the, these these interactions are there three. They're... They're part of the mermaid's appeal and allure because she lives in a world that we can't access. She lives in an element that we can't live in. Um, and so that lends itself to stories about humans interacting with them and being either being taken down to that world in a temporary sort of um, magical trip 
or a mermaid coming onto land somehow, either because she has legs on land, uh, a bit like Selkies, yeah, uh, Scotland, where she can shed her seal pelts and actually become a human woman. Um, or, you know, there's, there's lots of different versions of stories like that where mermaids somehow can enter our realm and be part of our world. Um, of course, Hans Christian Andersen's yeah. Little Mermaid's the best and probably most well-known. Do you have any sense of, you just were talking about having legs on land, and I, I realized um, that I sometimes take that as for granted because it's in so many movies. Um, but is there any sense from your research of, you know, if there was any particular place that owned um, a land form more, or if it's just kind of all mixed up together, um, whether or not they could had a different land form? Um, do, do you mean? It, do you mean is it sort of more common to have them coming onto land, or do you mean have they got their own special place? Oh, I meant like, yeah, yes, I meant like like is it is it is it are some are do some places have more legends of them coming on land versus other places, or is it ju- just an all mixed bag? And yes, them coming onto like human land. Um, I I'd say it's fairly mixed okay. because. Uh, Two, two, well, more than two examples spring to mind. I'll just give you two examples on opposite sides of the world. So in Irish tales of mermaids, they often have uh, an accessory or an attribute a bit like the selkie in Scottish and, and sort of um, uh, Outer Hebrides um, mythology. They, they have a red cap, which comes from Celtic mythology, and so these Irish mermaids, once their red cap is, is off, they can be on land. But if they lose the red cap, they can't go back to the sea and become mermaids again. So, th- so there's an example where um, they, they sort of have legs on land. And then another example springs to mind in Japanese origin myths. So um, the story of Japan's first emperor, um, Jimu, and um, his story, his ancestor is the daughter of the water dragon who lives under the sea and, and has a great um, kingdom there. And his daughter comes to, uh, she falls in love with a uh, human and she comes to land um, pregnant and she tells him that she's pregnant and she's clearly in human form then. And she says to him, um, I'm going to give birth to our child. Uh, he needs to build me a birthing hut. So he builds her a nice birthing hut with cormorant feathers for the roof. And uh, she goes into labour just before he's finished the roof. And part of the condition of building this birthing hut is that he's not allowed to watch while she gives birth to their child. And she warns him not to do this, but he can't resist having a little peek through the roof <laughs> in the, <laughs> the thatch roof that he hasn't quite finished. Uh-huh. And he looks down at her as she's giving birth, and she's not giving birth in her human form. She's giving birth in her um, her water dragon form. Now, I'm calling her a water dragon, but the translation of it's quite difficult. Some people have interpreted it as a kind of water serpent, a bit like Malacene, and of course... That story, if you, you're probably not familiar with the story of Melusine, but there's an, a parallel there in that she tells her husband he's not allowed to see her on a Saturday when she's taking a bath, and that's when she turns back into her water fairy form. But anyway, um, the, the Dragon King's daughter gives birth in her natural, supernatural form, 
and um, her husband sees her and at that moment she can't stay with him anymore. It's not made clear why she can't, whether she's just really cross at him for ignoring her request. I'm not quite sure, but um, she, she goes back to the sea and then sends her sister to go and look after the baby. And that baby then marries her sister, uh, marries his aunt, and then their child is the, I think it's their child, is the first emperor of Japan. So that first emperor of Japan has this mythical history where there's this water fairy, this water dragon. Um, and of course, so that, that's another example of myths around the world where you have these water-dwelling women who on land look just like any human woman, but when they're doing something special like giving birth or in their native element, they're no longer in a human form. So... That's a very long answer to your question, but I think what I'm trying to say is there are so many different versions of um, these tales across the world that it's quite mixed and it's difficult to track whether one place or another had more legends that had mermaids coming onto land than than other cultures. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, well, that's that is cool. I think when when I found really interesting listening to you speak is that I had forgotten that because I've seen Splash, and I also, um, I'm a writer, and I write mermaids who come on land, and so I just always assume they have a leg form, and I and I had forgotten that, like, that wasn't always the case. Um, but also what I think is interesting when you speak is, um, you know, when I, when I talk to people who are into mermaids, there's always kind of a hope that they exist, but it's not, like, a scientific question. <laughs> Um, and so it's fascinating to think back to a time where it was a legitimate, um, a legitimate question. We knew far less about the ocean or the depths of it um, that we do now. Although there's still unexplored parts of the ocean, so just going to keep that faith. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so do you? Is there any? Um, is there any like a particular study or you know paper that ever came out uh, went about like the legitimacy of the mermaid and where um, we might find them? In any did you find any of that in your research? Oh yeah, there's, there's lots of that, um, especially in the 18th and 19th century. Um, you get quite a lot of people writing about. Um, the history of mermaids, uh, reported sightings before their time and what they might have been. Um, it's a, a really lovely example um, of a mermaid that was captured um, in the Moluccas in the Pacific Ocean. And she was supposedly kept um, for, oh, how many days? Was it three or four days? I can't remember. Sorry, I'm, I'm kind of winging it off the top of my head here without facts available to me. But um, from memory, she, she was kept alive for a few days. And uh, a man called um, Samuel Fallas is the one who supposedly kept her. And he drew a picture of what she looked like and recorded details about what she'd done while she was supposedly still alive. And the picture that he drew is a mermaid with what can best be described as an eel-like tail, a really long elongated tail like an eel's. And um, she supposedly cried, made little whimpering sounds like a mouse. And um, 
she wouldn't eat whatever they gave her. They tried her with shellfish, they tried her with grasses and mosses, and she wouldn't eat anything. And she eventually starved to death. And when they took her out of this little tank that he'd been in, apparently she'd left some um, excrement that looked like cat poop. Um, and some... <laughs> so there you go, Merle's. Merle's poo like cat poo. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, Samuel Fowler's recorded all of this and his drawings were done for the Dutch authorities that were in charge of the islands at the time and these ended up back in mainland Europe and they were copied and, and the, his picture of the mermaid actually ended up in the first colour book on fish of um, the, um, the Pacific, the South Pacific. And... Um, this book triggered off all kinds of debates amongst eminent scholars of the time, talking through whether this was real or imagined or exaggerated or if it was some kind of sea creature that um, clearly wasn't a mermaid but was something as yet undiscovered that had been mistaken for a mermaid. And so there, there are actually lots and lots, you know, well into double figures at least, maybe even triple figures, who knows. Uh, I've not tracked them all, but um, there's lots of accounts um, where mermaids are discussed in a real scientific context, and, and that book particularly triggered off a lot of debate. Um, I think at one point the Tsar of Russia wanted to go to Amsterdam to talk to the person who had the drawings just to learn a little bit more of the history of them. I'm sure that that fact is, is right. I know I'm not imagining that, but yeah, if, if any of the listeners are interested, maybe uh, interested, just maybe double check that because I may be misremembering, but yeah, I'm pretty sure that royal dignitaries were interested in this particular creature and talked to a few scientists about whether mermaids were real. Um, all right, well, just to wrap up, I wanted to ask you, obviously, if people want to learn more about this, they should buy your books, because um, it sounds like a great place to start. Um, but going back to the British Isles where we started, um, if any of us who don't live there were so lucky to uh, go to the UK, is there anywhere in particular we should go to see a cool piece of mermaid history? Oh, what a wonderful question to ask. I've got a great answer to that, actually. I was in London last um, time, now. I'm like, I ruined there, there it. Are... I didn't go anywhere. <laughs> 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 I missed it. <laughs> it, it kind of, yeah, that's the perfect question, really. Um, so I've been developing as part of my Mermaid to the British Isles project uh, a map that plots all of the medieval iconography in the British Isles um, that still exists today. And there are a few examples of things that have been lost on there as well. But essentially, when it's live, which which should be soon, fairly soon, um, I just need to keep checking all the data that's in there and make sure it's all right because there's a, a wealth of data in the map. Um, what your listeners will be able to do is click on the map and have a little look at various different parts of the country and see where there are examples of mermaid, medieval mermaid artwork still available to go and look at. Now, most of them are in cathedrals and churches across the British Isles, but there are a few in places like stately homes as well, and there's some nice artefacts that I've added on there. There are also museums too. So there's, there's lots of wonderful examples. There's plenty in Cornwall. 
Um, there's plenty in the Midlands. Um, unfortunately, not so many in Scotland and Wales, but um, I think it's due to the, the sort of architectural nature of the buildings and in that period. The English churches were much more um, extravagant and well-built, essentially. Yeah, that's interesting. Isn't there... Uh, there were some mermaid sightings. I remember this. And I thought the Isle of Skye. No, Isle of Man. No, there. Yeah, there actually, probably both of them. Oh, okay, great. Um, there's, there's quite a few. Yeah, quite a few. Um, the Isle of Man comes in um, in the 17th century. There's a few reported there. Um, but Scotland's really famous um, for the, the kind of Highlands mm-hmm. and um, the Outer Hebrides. Mm-hmm. I think it was 1830. Mm-hmm. The people of um, Benbecula, Benbecula. I'm not quite sure how you pronounce it actually, but I'm going to go with Benbecula. And um, the, the the inhabitants of that island apparently caught a mermaid, and um, she had, I think, stones thrown at her by a little boy, and and died. And they buried her on one of the island on the island. Um, so there's a mermaid buried in the Outer Hebrides somewhere. Um, but yeah, there's, there's quite a lot in the Scottish Islands, but they tend to be sightings rather than artwork that you can still go and see. So you can, you can go to places. I've got a separate map with mermaid sightings plotted as well that I'll release at some point. So people can actually go to the places where these creatures were seen, but, um, the, the first map is, is actual, um, artwork of mermaids that you can still see. So there's some there's some lovely examples. Westminster Abbey has one and St George's Chapel where Harry and Meghan recently got married. So that's got a lovely mermaid misericord. No way Oh my Yeah, God. yeah. That's gonna be a fun royal wedding fact that I'll put in on the show notes. <laughs> um oh okay wonderful. Um so I I, I mean, I have 18 million more questions, but I'll just read your book and then ask you. Um, so the, on that note, do you want to tell people um, where they can find you? And also, if you have an idea when your books will be coming out, how and where they can get them? Oh, gosh, that's, that's, that's a horrible question. No, I'm sorry, as a writer, the books will be out as soon as I can physically get them out. Um, I've already got quite a lot written, so it shouldn't be too much longer to wait, but if you can just hang on in there um, for a bit longer. Um, in the meantime, I regularly put updates on um, my website and social media, so um, I would say my website, which is sarahpeverly.com, is probably the best place to go. And there are links on there to a website that I'm setting up specifically for managing the British Isles, which will, will be up and live soon. We're currently still building bits of the site. So a few bits of it are there to look at. The others, again, hopefully listeners can be a little bit patient with that. But um, the stuff should all be coming out fairly soon. Um and hopefully I'll be doing other events when they do come out and um, talks, regularly talks and radio interviews and um, TV stuff on Mermaids. So you can, you can catch up with what's coming out fairly easily on my website, I think. All right. Um, lovely. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of your knowledge of the entire cultural history of mermaids with us. (laughs) 
it's just, you know, the whole history of it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> why why something in a small way? Right. No, I say, like, you could focus on one place, but when you get into it, it's everywhere. <laughs> so, um, and I will definitely put the links to your website in our show notes so people can find them. Um, and, and then before we stop the recording, is there just is there any last thing people might need to know about mermaids that you think they should know? Um, I I guess that mermaids have been with us since humans started creating civilizations, and they're not showing any signs of disappearing anytime soon. So they're they're our companions, really. They've, they've been with us since the dawn of time, and I think we should we should carry on enjoying them. I, I love that. That's wonderful. That is a beautiful note to end. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to the Mermaid Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please tell a friend or leave a review. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram. We are at Mermaid Podcast. We'll have links to all the mermaid news mentioned in this episode on our website, mermaidpodcast.com. Thank you also to our sponsor, Mermaid Magic. Don't forget to use code PODCAST20 for 20% off your order of biodegradable mermaid glitter and sparkle scales at getmermaidmagic.com. And whether you are in New York City or elsewhere, it would be my pleasure to coach you on how to get unstuck and live your dream. So head over to fairybossmother.com to learn about our special program, Don't Quit Your Daydream. And finally, thank you so much to our listeners and everyone who leaves us comments and sends us emails. I cannot say thank you enough for listening to this and letting us know what you think about it. And also thank you to Sarah Peverly for sharing all of her incredible knowledge with us. You are an inspiration, Sarah, to never quit your daydream. I will be traveling for a couple weeks, so it'll be a little bit until you hear from me. But as always, keep swimming, keep listening, don't quit your daydream. It's the Mermaid Podcast. We've got mermaids on the land and down below. Legs or fins, you will love our show. All the news that makes a splash is on the Mermaid Podcast.